Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Braden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. And most translations, including the one I've provided for you, which we'll read the text in a second, but most begin with this word, this adverb, actually, likewise or similarly. So this is your little hint or indicator that whatever was just said, this is going to be comparable to that. So as you've reflect on last week, how all of creation has been groaning and the like labor pains, that's the language she gives for it, for the new creation. What was that? Yeah, no, I'm not going back to that. Yeah, I, I dug myself into a hole last week. I'm not going to today. Uh, how all creation is digging, it, uh, digging itself. All creation is in labor pains for the new creation. He says, likewise. So let's read this. So just verses 26 through 27, and we'll stop there and focus on some things. Likewise, also, the Spirit joins in helping us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans beyond what words could express. And the searcher of our hearts knows what the mindset of the Spirit is, because the Spirit appeals on behalf of the Holy Ones according to God's will. So these are the times when we know we need to pray, but we don't know what to say. Like, have you felt that before? You know, you know you need to pray, but you have no idea what to say. And it could also be, there's like almost two completely different spectrums of how this plays out. It could be the times when our hearts are heavy, but we don't have words. It could also be the times when uh, we are so glad and so words don't do justice to the joy that we feel. Uh, this is just a little friendly reminder tonight that prayer is so much more than the words we say. Prayer is communion with God. And so sometimes it involves words, but at least from my own personal experience, and maybe this is just me, but more often my prayers are filled with wordless presence of God than it is actually with words uh, itself. So that's just a little encouragement if you're considering a growing in uh, what it means to craft time with God via prayer, it doesn't have to involve words. Like, it, like it, that, that, I guess that's the part, uh, I haven't processed this. I didn't think I was going to process this out loud, but why not? The hard part for me with like corporate prayer, like prayer with a lot of people, is it's almost like the whole time is like, okay, let's pray. Someone starts talking, 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 amen, prayer is done. And like, that's great because whatever was just said was probably really, really important. I'm not downplaying that. But since prayer is also a lot of what's not said and just the abiding or lingering in, in a, like at least in a state of being with God, then the amen, the amen shouldn't even come until after a period of at least silence, but attentiveness to God's presence. And I, I, I get that a lot of that's also just personal, like how I... Um, prefer to interact with prayer, so I get that, but no matter who someone is, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely making a sketching an overgeneralization of how prayer meetings or whatever go. So that's not fair to like, first of all, apply to everyone or everyone's prayer meeting. But I, I think you do bring up a really good point um, that like, I guess two things I would say on that. First of all, there's going to be times that we have a lot we almost need to vent and like work itself through. And something I've been thinking a lot about lately is how it's best to convert those thoughts into prayers. So make those directionally pointed because uh, there's a way to just think through whatever you're going through, and that's very reflexive. Uh, that's just bringing it within myself and my own resources and my own thoughts. I'm just being reflexive. Okay, Braden, how do I feel about this? What, what am I going to do? Just walking through those themes. But uh, what I found is I feel like it takes a lot more effort and energy to pray. And why is that? Because prayer is relational. Because prayer is directional. It means you are now taking off the tension off being purely reflexive and now pointing that to God, which is therefore becoming a conversation. And so let's say you're processing something, frustration or whatever, insert whatever emotion you want. Talking that through with God and just processing that in the means of prayer, I think is really fruitful. And so I, all that to say, I think there's many times that you have a lot to say and unload, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you come to almost like the table uh, with God, with just having a lot to say. But on the other end, Bruce, I think there's something really prudent and wise about times when when you have that rhythm and routine of prayer and that there's times that, you know what, I just need to sit here silent and let God kind of prompt what is going to even be said from this. And so giving him that. that. I agree. I agree. Because it always seems to be output. Yes. And that was my point. So maybe, maybe if, if that's a good way of connecting it, that was kind of my point with what I meant by it. It's like a lot of it is viewed as, okay, prayer is, and so that's, and actually I was talking with someone last week. I'll, I'll let them be unnamed just in case you know, guys know the person. But I was talking to someone about who's struggling with prayer who wanted to pray more. Fun conversation. I love this stuff as being a pastor. And um, as he was talking about prayer, he had this idea, literally, it's just crazy, guys. Like, you don't take, don't assume what people know or don't know, right? And so he thought literally prayer was the words you said to God, and then when you said amen. And so for him, he's like, I just don't have that much to say. So I've been trying to like pray for like 10 minutes, but I don't even have 10 minutes of content. You know, I'm paraphrasing here what he's saying, but I, I get it. And yeah, and I get it, but, I, but he's comparing it to, I guess, he knows some people, and I know some people, too, who are total intercessors in prayer. My gosh, I, these are the people who are like, man, you can give them an hour, and they have content for that prayer. Wonderful. Not knocking them at all. Actually, that's awesome. Good for them. But my point is, though, that, like, if you, let's say you're trying to build a discipline of having 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, of prayer, whatever that looks like for you. You don't have to have 10 minutes of content to have 10 minutes of prayer. You don't have to have 10 minutes of output to use your language. I like that. You don't have to have 10 minutes of output to have 10 minutes of prayer. You can have one minute of output and have nine more minutes of prayer. And I think this passage in Romans 8 is really cool because it's one of the passages you can go to if you're building like a theology of prayer. This is one of those places you would go. Obviously, it doesn't fill in all the picture, but it's not the whole truth, but it is the truth, right? So in this case, there's something to be said about the role of the Holy Spirit joining in to help you in your weakness. And so again, whether that's the spectrum of your heart is heavy and you don't have words or you're really over glad and you're trying to commune with God even in the state of joy and the words don't even do it justice. And, and no matter where it is in the spectrum on those polar opposites or everything in between, there's a place for that because uh, 
to get technical here, the way in which it's talking about weakness here doesn't necessarily mean in something about us being morally incompetent. That's not the point of this word for weakness right here. The point of this word for weakness is just in the fragility of our state that we're in. As like on this side of redemptive history, <laughs> in the remember how there's some things that are now and some things that are not yet. Since there's some things of us that aren't true yet about how we will be, at least in our relationship with God and stuff, how liberating is it to know that, like, yeah, like, you can be honest that even in prayer, we are very imperfect in how we come to God in prayer, and that's not knocked and counted against us. If we link this also to something that's already been said in Romans 8, we can piece a little bit of what Paul might be implying here. So, for example, I'll, I'll get to you in a second. So, for example, with the uh, Romans 8, I think it's verse 16, right? How the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I think, and Heather, you've brought up a story of that. We've, we brought up a few stories of how sometimes God's Spirit will do that, and sometimes that's through the means of prayer. That he, there's going to be these wordless things. Like, at least for me, I don't, off, I don't get these audible things from God. Like, if you guys do, cool. That definitely can happen. Doesn't happen for me, okay? Uh, <laughs> hardly ever. I think there's been, like, one time that maybe was that. But, like, for me, though, it is these times, though, that the Spirit is speaking into something or affirming something in me or something like that. But... It's not with words, but it's so vocal. It's definitely language. It's definitely communication. It's just not the way of communication we do. And so in a similar sense, uh, I love that. I, I think Paul just put it so perfectly to the human experience, or at least I should even specify, to the Christian experience. Um, because he says how intercedes with us with groans beyond what words can express. How cool is it that like, God basically can speak a language to you that you know is him or will discern to know that it's him, even though it doesn't fit the category of words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, the way I would kind of parse those out is I think what you're describing, what I'm describing, what we're kind of describing with this a silent attentiveness to the presence of God fits what classical Christian spirituality would call as contemplation. Contemplation is more of the embracing of the silence, but also not the silence for silence sake as other, I guess, religions or spiritualities would call it, but silence for the sake of engaging the presence of God in that silence. Whether God does interact um, via some sort of communication in that silence, or if it's just that God meets you in that way in other ways that feels like just like a touch or the, his warmth or his peace or his joy or something that comes in that. But contemplatives in Christianity, uh, th that, that'd be more contemplative. But meditation of what I understand of how, that, how Christian meditation interacts with prayer is more of like you are intentionally putting something into your mind, whether you're meditating on a passage, because that's the, that's the most original use of meditation, by the way, to chew on something is where that Hebrew word for meditate comes on. It's like... Yeah, yeah, so it's a way that a cow would chew its cud. That's where meditation comes from, the word. But uh, so, so it, translating that into spirituality, that would be how, like, if I'm going to meditate on a passage, so Romans 8, 1, I'd be mulling that over again, like, in my head, like, there's no condemnation for me. God, like, please remind me that I'm not condemned, that I can come to you with full confidence. Like, there's no condemnation. Like, it would be mulling that over. So it's a very, very active practice in meditation of how you are engaging that. Whereas in contemplation, you're kind of trying to position yourself in a static but, like, passive role for whatever God wants to do with that time. 
whether he's going to speak or whatever. It's a lot so, more passive. So if you hear him speak, then that contemplation could also involve prayer. Because yes. If, if we're defining prayer as yeah. communication. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, and that's where, so to, again, to go to semantics, uh, I, that's where I like to define prayer. I think communication is a facet of it, but at even more raw core of prayer, I would just say is communion. Okay. Communication is one outworking of prayer because whether that's us speaking in the communication or, you know, as a dialogue, or if God's speaking back to us, but again, even when there's no words, whether on my end or his end, uh, there's still communion. That is still there even if there's no communication. And actually, to be honest, I think that this is, if we're going to be a people who build a uh, vibrant and consistent prayer life, we're going to have to be very comfortable with the fact that there's sometimes communion and no communication. Because even some of the greatest giants of uh, Christian history had periods of silence when it came to the communication part, but there was an unbroken communion. And that, to me, is why I would define prayer as communion and sometimes an outworking of communication. And uh, so that's why prayer is a multidimensional way of interacting with God. That, to me, is so important when I talk about prayer. It's multidimensional. It can, it can look like, sometimes for me, it's contemplation. Sometimes it's meditation. Sometimes it's intercessory prayer for Others. Sometimes it's petition. It's, God, I have these things I, I want to bring to you, and God welcomes that. Sometimes it's gratitude, prayers of gratitude. Sometimes it's prayers of repentance and confession. Sometimes it's prayers of guidance, like I need, I need, I need some guidance on this. Sometimes it's prayers prayer, of protection. protection, prayers of protection. Power. So see how like, prayer is kind of like this arsenal that you have access to, but many Christians, since we don't talk about this enough, in my opinion at least, we see prayer so is so siloed into one of those. Whatever you grew up as, you probably saw as, okay, it's when I ask for things, or okay, prayer is when I confess my sins, or prayer is when I intercede for others, or whatever it is. But like it's, so think about what happened in Isaiah chapter 6. So uh, the prophet Isaiah, when he's commissioned by God, he is somehow has this incredible scene where he's brought to the throne of God, and he sees the glory of God. And he is, what is his first reaction? Instead of just purely celebrating, this is awesome, I'm seeing God. Oh my gosh, he is overwhelmed with, interestingly, not just his sin, but the sin of his people. Fascinating little side note right there. But like, he's so overwhelmed with sin, basically. Like, and how that is like, oh my gosh, I'm staying in the presence of someone who's so good, like so perfect, I'm not. And so then, yeah, I'm a man with unclean lips, that whole thing. And so the, the seraphim, right, come to, uh, to cleanse, you know, put a hot coal and all the symbolism there that we will not unpack in detail right now. But point being, isn't that interesting, though, that when Isaiah is having, debatably, or I guess presumably, the most spiritual experience of his life, at least up to that point, the first thing that's brought to his attention is his sin and that's led to a confession and led to a, uh, an atonement for it. So in a similar sense, uh, going to what you're saying, Heather, I think there's obviously in community we need more of that confession and reminding of each other. But also, even in your own individual like prayer time, I, I, I too find that to be true, that times when I feel very like at ease and like at, wow, I'm sensing God is really, he's always near, but like I'm sensing he's really near in this moment of prayer. Oh my gosh, like there's this weird how it draws me into confession. Not that I like am walking through some steps in my head like, okay, now I must confess my sins because I learned a certain acronym of prayer or whatever. No, it's just really organic. It's really interesting. And I've journaled about this a lot. And so that's why I find the connection quite fascinating. And so it's those times then also I'm like, 
This confession, though, is not, and here just is, here's where it's abundantly clear. It's not God saying, Brayden, I know you're trying to draw near to me, but you cannot come near. You're in the penalty box right now. It's not that. It's this really interesting thing, though, where he's actually trying to pull me closer, but sin still has to be dealt with as he's pulling me closer. So that confession comes really organically from within, and it feels so healed in that moment. And so going back to what you're saying with confession, we need it in community, and we need it more with God. Because God's not trying to hold that over us to prevent us from him. He's trying to get it out of us so he can get it out of us. So that's, that's part of the beauty of that. I know that was really anecdotal to this yeah, passage, but... And, and yeah, yeah. A, yeah, 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 true. It's a discipline. Uh, on the heels of what was just said about the groanings of creation, well, this is now the groanings from within. So it, now this is one of those times that Paul went from total cosmic in scope to the most smallest little thing to, like, to what is true of inside you. So he took it as personal as possible at this point. It was just about the whole redemption of everything in creation. Now, hyper-honed into you, that same groaning is happening. Likewise, similarly, that's what this word means, uh, the Spirit is joining and groans within you. The groans recall the groaning of creation in Christians, so that'd be verses uh, 22 and 23. Um, But there's also a really cool link with this, where this same word for groaning is used of ancient Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt. So if you look in the Septuagint, so the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Exodus 2.24, but also in Acts 7.34, both recalling the groaning uh, of the people of God in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt, this is the same word used. I don't think it's an accident. One, because it's kind of a rare word. It's not like your most common word. And so I'm just saying, as we keep intertwining those connections between Exodus and New Exodus, this is another one of those connections. What is that connection? Because since, since we sense that there is still an element of how we are being saved, this groaning is coming out of that. And so it's that reminder, oh my gosh, like if I can pull it this way, if Paul really is drawing on that, and I think he is, it's the reminder, wow, remember how God was so faithful to the groans of the people of God in Egypt? He will be faithful to our groans. So the promise that was just made about that big cosmic in scope promise, he's going to be faithful to those groans too. I completely agree. I think the part of the groans is because, yes, it took a while for Israelites to be rescued from, to have their exodus. Our new exodus is certain and coming, but you are still in the thick of it. And so groans are a natural part of it. Uh, We concluded last week with just, in part of our summary as we put it all together, was like how this life is an enthusiastic anticipation of what God is going to do. That's like a huge part of this life. And so that's like the positive, fun way of saying it. This way is a little bit more in the dirt, uh, feet planted firmly on the ground way of saying it, that, hey, you know what? This life is full of groans. But how good is it that God is not the opposite of that, that God is not absent in that? So actually quite the opposite. God is present and engaged in our groans and he's meeting us there in a way that cannot be fully expressed in words and he never stops interceding in behalf of you in those times too yes absolutely and that's why that verse 27 is so important because it's connected and so continuing the thought the searcher of our hearts knows what the mindset of the spirit is because the spirit appeals on behalf of the holy ones aka you and me as christians according to god's will wow so cool it's pretty profound. I mean, yeah, it's one of those things that's easy to like read over and kind of gloss over and 
Yeah. Like, you know, if you're like doing like your morning Bible reading, you're just trying to get through a certain passage. Like, okay, I got to read a chapter because I said I would read a chapter every morning or whatever it was. And I'm just reading through it and you just miss those kind of things. So it definitely is one of those. But yeah, so like, I guess in this way, in verses 26 and 27, Christians are living within this like wrinkle of time between the now and the not yet of God's ultimate eschatological new exodus kind of plan of salvation for not just the cosmos, like as it was in the previous passage, but also for us. And so prayer, and specifically the Holy Spirit's prayer within us, uh, is like that breath that sustains the momentum as we're moving forward towards God's ultimate plan. It's just this beautiful, like, beautiful picture. And if I had to put an illustration to it, it'd be this. It's like walking to the spot you're going to go to pray, whatever that is, whatever comes to mind for you. And as you get there, you see the Holy Spirit is already there. He has been praying for you before you showed up. And he will pray for you, with you, as you sit there. And he will keep, keep praying through you even when you don't have words. And when you keep going about the day, you can rest assured that the Spirit will continue to pray on your behalf. That's what he does. He's that indwelling resident advocate living in you. And he never stops interceding for you. Why? Because go back to Romans 8.1. Because if you are in Christ... There are so many benefits of being in Christ. And this is simply one of them, that now the Holy Spirit is ever-present interceding on your behalf. So you never go to a time of prayer where he has not already been prepping that moment for you. And while you're there, he's there with you. And when you leave that moment of prayer and go about your day to work your nine-to-five job or go take the kids somewhere or go uh, whatever you're doing, he's still praying for you. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. I don't even have more words for it. I mean, speaking of how he doesn't have more words, I don't have more. I, it's just awesome. So it's been rocking my world to meditate on this way. And so to think, I think it's given me a little bit more, revived a little bit more of the sanctity of going to God in prayer that knowing that he, the Holy Spirit is already praying is crazy to me. So yeah, as I just said, Verses 28 through 30, uh, these were the last verses we're looking at for tonight and uh, have some comments and would be curious to see what you guys think too. Yeah, as we read it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those called according to his purpose. Since those whom he foreknew, he also predestined them to be conformed into the image of his son so that he may become the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he foreknew, these are the people he also called. And those whom he called are those whom he justified, and those whom he justified are also those whom he glorified. All right. A lot of good stuff in here. Uh, I, I think we get to notice here that this is obviously coming just right after this, so let's keep it really connected to it. Um, part of what the Holy Spirit is doing in his intercession is helping us see that all things are working together for an ultimate good if we're called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. It means that it's all being used to work together for good. And that's a really important distinction, I think so. At least in this passage, the part that's predestined, you have to link it to what it says immediately after. It's not just his, and predestined, uh, close sentence, he also predestined them to be conformed into the image of his son. Okay, so predestination here is being spoken of as a trajectory, a goal in mind. What was predestined was for uh, those to come into conformity to Christ. And so it'd be kind of like this. This is a 
imperfect analogy, but it's the best one I can think of. The San Diego airport has scheduled flights all over the world, frankly. But So if there's scheduled flights to New York already scheduled and booked and it's going to take off at 7 a.m. or whatever, there are some who buy tickets to that predestined flight. Okay, so the, the flight, the, the, what is predestined about that flight is that that is leaving from San Diego and it's making its way to New York. What is not specified in that is who are going to come along to jump on board that plane. Imperfect analogy, yes, but I think the focus of what's predestined in this passage is the goal of where the plan is going, not on, okay, and that person's predestined, that person's not. No, and you guys are and you guys are allowed to disagree and view things differently on this really big question. I think this question, especially when you bring in Romans 9, 10, 11, I think where it goes awry is when you read Romans 9, 10, 11 to be a passage about individual salvation. Because it does talk about God choosing, and I'm not downplaying that. That is a huge part of Romans 9. God is choosing. But what Paul was recapping is how God chose particular people for the vocation of bringing about the Messiah and what they would do in that plan of God. And so by choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, this is not about salvation. It doesn't mean that uh, Esau is automatically written out from God's book of life or whatever. Esau could very well have a saving relationship with God. In fact, there's hints. I mean, we don't know, but there's hints in Genesis based on how Esau's life kind of concludes and what we see and how that plays out. That Esau seems like he has a relationship with God. So the point isn't that God rejected from relationship with him. The point is that God rejected him from being the one who's through his progeny, that the, the elective vocational purpose, because it had to go through someone to what God was doing. And so in a similar sense, if we're going to use election as putting salvation automatically on it, there's a problem. Because Israel is elected uh, and was elected, but not all of Israel is of Israel. And what Paul does there is we, we know from Israel's history, people like Achan, Achan did not end up expressing loyalty to Yahweh, right? And there's a few others. There's quite a few. I mean, and that's why even in the prophets, by the time the prophets come, the minor prophets, major prophets, it speaks of this remnant. Wait a second. If there's a remnant within Israel, that means that some are not truly worshiping Yahweh and have a relationship with him. So that means even though all of Israel was elected for the vocational purposes of what God's going to do through them, it does not mean that all of Israel had a saving relationship with God, which is the kind of terms we think about when we think of election. But that's not it. It's vocation in what God is doing through that. And so, and that's why at the same time, those who are not elected can still have a saving relationship with God. Rahab, Ruth, uh, all the, and all these other people, uh, I guess prior to Jesus' day, prior to Jesus' day can still be saved, uh, to use our vernacular, yeah. even though they are not elected in the same way because they were not part of the historic, like, people who God was vocationally doing something through. So I, I guess all that to say, I, I, I don't know how to resolve all the questions with that topic, and I'll admit that both sides have really compelling points. I'll say it this way. Whether you are a Calvinist, Arminian, somewhere in the middle, neither or don't care in which we stopped talking about it 10 minutes ago. Uh, wherever you are on that, I'm not trying to persuade you out of it. Take it that way. Because I think, uh, I, I, yes, while I embrace this a little bit mysterious, I don't have a qualm with whichever one you hold to. If you are Calvinist, Armenian, somewhere in between, or don't care,
great. I'm not going to try to persuade you out of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to try to persuade you out of it, partly because I, I, this, is one of the, this is probably the theological question I will be totally comfortable chalking up to mystery. And I, it, to, I'll even say it this way. I no longer even investigate it. I have, I have total peace with moving my energy into th- studying and looking at and thinking through other things and being okay with whatever the outcome of how the inner workings of divine sovereignty and human responsibility inner work and the interplay of that, I'm fine with that. So whatever your view is and however interest if you have, if you're super interested, I'm not trying to squelch your enthusiasm. If you're not interested at all, I'm also high-fiving you that that's fine to not be interested in it. So... That's all. Cool. Uh, we have only a few minutes because it's already 8 o'clock. Wonderful. So a few quick comments here. <laughs> um, it's really cool. <laughs> At the end of verse 30, he says he, he's affirming something that's already true of us, that we are foreknown, and we're not going back into that. Uh, we've been called. And that, so these last two words here, that we have been justified, so made right with God, uh, going back to Romans 8, 1, right? And then also that we have been glorified. And now that's a fascinating one to put kind of in that past tense right there. Uh, these are all aorist verbs in Greek. So in, in the aorist indicative mood, this is your way of communicating past tense. So this is all happening. We agree with these. Yeah, we, I've been foreknown. I've been called. I've been justified. We can all like, yeah, I get that. But then we've been glorified. Wait, Paul, you just in the previous passage mentioned how this whole glorification is yet to come. You put this in the not yet category and now you're speaking about it as a now. Now my simplest way of bringing this to you and actually I stand in the great company of a lot of scholars and commentators is this is just a way and sometimes this is used in Greek to, throw, to follow the string of other aorist tenses to use it as just a way of displaying total confidence in that this will happen too. So, so in other words, just as all of these have already been happening, you can stand in the confidence and assurance of it. You can also stand in the confident assurance that your glorification is just as secure as all those things which are already true. And so although the, the implications of the reality of being glorified have not happened yet, it is a set and sealed in stone, and you can stand in that security. That's where he takes that one. There's no way of saying it has happened yet, but again, syntactically speaking, this is, I think, a stylistic way of stringing together some past tense verbs to then throw in this last one as a surprise to ground it in the certainty with the other ones it's standing next to. Uh, well, this is kind of a fun little way of, I, I wanted to write out a way of how I can summarize this, okay? So here it is. I'm trying to take in some new Exodus imagery and how I want to summarize this. From Passover to the promised land, the Christian journey embraces how all things are being dynamically wielded by the sovereign king of creation as he takes his people toward a glorious new destiny. All things in that way are working towards good. And this whole passage is to, designed to remind us of God's sovereignty. And so that is why certain terms like foreknown and called, although we get hung up on it, I think sometimes with the wrong angle, it is highlighting God's sovereignty. And so I don't want to downplay that. It's highlighting that and how he's exercising all of that in love, which is actually a really great transition into next week's passage. The last passage we'll look at in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, which is no doubt about God's unconquerable love for us in Christ. Something we will explore next week.